Thanks for listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast, presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. We'll take on a new horse training or horse care topic in every episode. Thanks for listening and enjoy the ride. I'm Heidi Mwako. I'm here with Julie Goodnight. And Julie, we have some kind of interesting things to talk about today. I know one thing you've told me that you hear often is that people ask, well, why did my horse come untrained? Or I want to go riding on the weekends, but my horse is doing this bad behavior and this bad behavior. And you, you, I've heard you say you kind of ask them, well, what do you do during the week? And they say, well, they're out with their buddy for the week. So that's, tell me a little bit about that. What causes that um, separation or the horse just to not want to focus on you when you go on the weekend if you haven't done anything through the week? Well, there's a real epidemic of that with, with people and their horses because not all horses can sit idle and hang out with a herd all week and then just step right into a working role on the weekends. A lot of people aren't that way, a lot of kids aren't that way, and a lot of horses aren't <laughs> that way. And I think that we live such busy lives and it's hard to find the time that some horses need. There are lots of horses out there that really need to be worked with and handled every single day. And, um, you know, it's tough for them if you don't interact with them much during the week and then you expect a whole lot out of them on the week. It's sort of unrealistic because um, it, this is all about relationships. It's a relationship between you and your horse. Not He's not just a machine. You could keep your motorcycle in the garage right. all week and only use it on Saturdays. But you have to have a relationship to get very far with a horse. And why is that? Tell me a little bit more about that herd mentality and, as you describe it, the herd of two. So if the horse is with his horse herd most of the time, what happens? Well, there are certain instinctive behaviors of horses that we we need to fully appreciate as instinct, meaning these are um, these behaviors are virtually fully formed at birth, and they're very strong behavioral urges. And it's known as gregarious behavior in horses, and gregarious means desire to be with others. And horses are by instinct herd animals, and it has to do with them being prey animals. Sure. And their behavior is all oriented towards finding safety in the herd and finding comfort in the herd. And so when you have a horse that's getting safety and comfort from the herd all week long and you just march into the middle of that peaceful existence and pull him out of there, he feels unsafe, he feels uh, very alone, and he can think of nothing other than to get back to the herd. So unless and until we, as humans, can replace those feelings of safety and comfort that the horse gets from the herd, he's not going to want to go anywhere with you. And so that's that's the relationship I was talking about. It's you know not he he's not going to just be willing to leave with anyone. He will only be willing to leave the safety and comfort of his own herd if he thinks you can give him those same things. So so much of what we do with horses is relationship building on top of training them specific skills that we want them to have. 
And what if this was a trained horse? It seems like that's a different, that doesn't even matter if the horse has become kind of so excited to be in his herd with other horses. It's not training or a training issue that you're talking about. It's that leadership and creating the herd of two, right? Sure. When, and, and that's really common. What you referred to previously is that people buy a trained horse and things go well at first, whether that be a, a day or a week or a month, but things slowly start raveling until one day it seems like you wake up and this beautifully trained horse that you paid a lot of money for has turned into a uh, night, spoiled brat nightmare of a horse that mm-hmm. you can't even get out of the pasture. Um, that is because when you bought him, he was handled in in a structured and routine way, and he did get that sense of safety and structure and comfort from his human handlers. Mm-hmm. Um, over time, if you if you fall down on that job of structure, rules, authority, um, that all equates to safety to the horse. So over time, we gradually uh, we erode our own authority with the horse, and we sometimes untrain him by letting him get away with tiny little things, like things that you, you don't think of even for months, uh, but he does. Um, tiny little things can erode your authority with the horse. And so this accumulates over time, and then the day that you finally notice it, it's because something big happened, uh, but there were a lot of little things that led up to that moment. That makes sense. And so it's not that the horse wasn't trained or wouldn't know how to do that if you stepped up some leadership, too. It's just that the herd behaviors and and the untraining, he's going to take advantage of that if he doesn't have to do those trained behaviors, he's not going to. Exactly. Work is work. Um, Although horses, I I know our horses do enjoy our interaction with them because if we ignore them for a few days or a week, they start begging. You know, Uh they they start asking for you to come. They start uh, showing a lot more interest in us. But no horse really wants to work hard voluntarily, and especially if that work involves stre- the stress of a um, less than skilled rider or the physical stress of a rider being out of balance or a saddle that doesn't fit or, you know, stuff like that. If you add into that, um, that stress on top of just having to work hard, uh, most horses aren't going to just step up and volunteer to be your um vehicle and um so we have to have that relationship you have to work on that relationship horses seek seek out and thrive on leadership structure discipline routine and uh, if i don't give those things to my horse it's unreasonable for him to expect for me to expect him to be looking for that stuff from me so um, you know, it's a two-way street. You you don't you don't get it for free with horses. You have to earn it. Have you seen instances where I'm sure you do because you get on a horse and they suddenly act different, but where it is a horse that was once trained and 
in the presence of someone who has a little lack of confidence or something, the horse just takes advantage, does all kinds of crazy behaviors, and then you come in and you can just get on and do what the horse is trained to do. Oh, sure. Horses, first of all, horses recognize authority and leadership. And second of all, horses don't unlearn stuff. And so it, take the case of a well-trained horse. If he was well-trained for a number of years when he was younger, um, he still knows that stuff. He could have also learned other stuff that was bad and, and conflicted with that, like he could have mm-hmm. learned that if he bucks, you'll get off of him, or he could have mm-hmm. learned that if he spooks on the way out the driveway, you'll take him back to the barn. But he still knows the other stuff, too. So when that uh, more confident person comes along and says, hey, knock it off, I'm not going to, here's what I expect, he'll go, oh, okay, I remember how to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not saying he'll be as fresh in that skill as he was five years ago, but a simple reminder will bring him right back to that skill. You cannot unlearn things. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing as well because when we make mistakes on our horses and we teach them the wrong thing accidentally, like if he jerks his head in a certain way, he can pull the rope out of your hand and run off. Um, I may have accidentally taught my horse that, but I can't erase that memory from this brain. He will forever know that he has the ability to jerk the rope out of your hands and run off. So. Um, we can't unlearn things, and when horses have good training in their past, that will come out quickly um, when they're handled in, in such a way that brings that out. And, Julie, is there a correlation to how long a horse has been turned out and how willing or unwilling they are to see you as the leader again? Do you see that more often if a horse has been turned out for a week at a time or over the winter in some cases, things like that? Is that a, a situation that gets harder as well, you've been handled less, as the horse has been handled less? Um, yes and no. Certainly the, um, you know, the more a horse has been handled, the more uh, desensitized and accustomed to that routine he becomes, but I would say that is a very individual thing. Okay. Um, some horses are way more herd bound than others. Some horses will regret, regress way more quickly than others. Also, it has a lot to do with the horse's lifetime of experience. If you've got a middle-aged horse that's got a lot of training and a lot of very positive handling, but no bad handling, and he hasn't learned bad things, then um, that horse you could turn out and not touch all winter long and come right back in the spring and pick right up where you left off. If the horse has had uh, bad experiences or poor handling, that may be quite different. If the horse is is temperament just makes him real insecure and real herd bound, um, that horse will revert back. It, with just a few days of of not handling. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of variance. In my opinion, I've never seen any research that could substantiate this one way or the other, but in my personal experience, middle-aged horses are more prone to become 
occur down in younger horses. So um, when horses, let's just say, four, let's pick 14 as a um, kind of an average sort of middle age, mm-hmm. begins begins middle age, um, that's when I want to be really careful. Some horses, no matter how well trained, if they are idle at that age for a number of years, they will become very, very herd bound. So uh, it, it, there's a lot of variabilities um, from temperament to experience that are going to weigh in on that. But that's really interesting to hear all of those differences and how individual horses are. And I think the bottom line that I hear you saying with all of those is you have to approach the horse as a leader and make sure that any time you have interaction, you do something. And that you keep reminding the horse that you are indeed the leader and have interactions more than just that weekly ride that we talked about at the at the beginning. Sure. And if you... If you have worked at establishing a good relationship with a horse, and let's say you're going on vacation or let's say you reach a point in your job uh, where you don't have much time for your horse, um, even just five minutes here and there as a reminder, five minutes here and there is never going to train a horse to do much. But if the horse is, if you have already done the work, it doesn't take much to maintain your relationship, um, but you're probably not going to – it's going to be a challenge to establish a good working relationship with a horse in five-minute increments, but if you've already established that relationship, you ought to be able to maintain it with just brief but meaningful interactions with your horse. Mm-hmm. So that's what I really wanted to get to. Like, what are some of these – fun things that you can do with your horse through the week and spice it up, be able to add in the time through the week so that when you do get to the weekend, you your horse knows you already have that relationship established and you can have a good ride when it gets there. So let's kind of go through like just some daily activities. I think you can make such a difference on how you approach your horse every time you see him, but really if you can carve out just a little bit of time to do something, say, like while you're grooming, what's something you can do that that would be fun for you and your horse while you're grooming and still keep that leadership goal going? Sure, yeah. There's, you know, there's lots of things in our in our just normal daily interaction that we can turn into a productive training experience without you know, really going out of our way. And, and I talk about this in clinics all the time. We, we spend a lot of time in my clinics doing groundwork to establish a better relationship with your horse. You don't have to do groundwork for three hours every day, and you don't even actually have to plan a groundwork session. What I like to remind people after the clinic is you've gotten a good start on this and you know what you need to work on, so every day when you just are walking your horse to and from his turnout or bringing him in for his feeding or bringing him to the packing and grooming area, mm-hmm. pepper in these little exercises. Um, in grooming, uh, of course, you always want to have a focus to the horse's manners, and so you don't want to, you know, you want to make sure that you don't condone bad manners while you're grooming him. Don't let him fidget around and bump into you and carry on. He should stand still and quiet so you can you can remind him of, of his manners as you groom him. 
Um, but one thing that I think is really fun to do is when I'm establishing a relationship with a horse, I always want to find his sweet spot. And the sweet spot is the place that you can scratch him or give him like a deep rubbing, scratching massage, Mm -hmm. and it feels really good to him. So it's it's the equivalent of like, you know how some dogs, when you scratch their belly, they'll Mm -hmm. uh, shake their leg? Yes. Well, um, instead of shaking his leg, what the horse is going to do is pucker his lips. So when a horse feels pleasure, when something feels pleasurable to the horse, he puckers his lip. And probably most people have seen their horse do that at some time or another. Sure. But I like to start, um, this is actually um, related to a natural behavior of horses. It's called mutual grooming, or you know, the science, scientific name would be aloe grooming. And um, aloe grooming is when two horses face each other and they scratch each other, mostly on the withers. They kind of give each other a deep tissue massage with their teeth, mostly around the wither area, um, sometimes down the back, sometimes up the neck. But the way the horse shows that he likes being scratched in that spot is by puckering his lip. Okay. So all you got to do is, and I, you want to use the tips of your fingers and even your fingernails really hard and really deep. I kind of will sort of scratch in a circular motion and just start scratching around the withers and the back, around the chest. Um, both of my horses have sweet spots on their neck, but Dooley's is real high up on his neck and Eddie's is real low down on his neck. Um, but you'll find the spot because, and you just watch his lips, and when he starts puckering them, that's the spot. Now, it's important to understand the natural behavior. Mutual grooming only occurs between bonded horses, and within any herd, your horse will, there will only be one or at the most two other horses he is especially bonded to. Those are the only horses that mutual groom. And uh, But still between those two horses, one of them is dominant and one of them is subordinate. So this is not, this is not unlike your, your relationship with your horse as a herd of two, and one of you is dominant, one of you is subordinate. Mm-hmm. As the dominant member of the herd, you, it is up to you to initiate any, any mutual grooming that occurs and to stop it any time uh, you're tired of it. And so as you, it's great to know your horse's sweet spot, but I don't just rub him there all the time. I want him to earn earn that kind of affection from me. So um, I might do it after a really great ride we've had or when my horse has done an exercise really well or maybe just on occasion. But uh, if I wanted to just to, to – just I only had five minutes, and I wanted mm-hmm. to scratch on my horse. I'd still go ahead and ask him to do something that that restated my authority. So maybe I'll say, okay, please back up a few steps for me. Very good. Now please step forward a few steps. Very good. Now please pivot to the right uh, quarter turn. Very good. Now I'm going to scratch on you. So uh, I might ask something of my horse first um, and then scratch on him. And then just one more reminder about that is that the dominant horse always ends the grooming session. If your horse, first of all, don't let your horse put his lips on you. If he does reach back and try to groom you back, 
acknowledge that nice gesture, but gently keep his push his nose back uh, to in front of his chest and um, don't let him put his lips on you. Just because that that sets a precedent, we don't we don't want us we don't want to take a chance of the horse thinking he's allowed mm-hmm. to put his lips on us. And um, so thank him for that gesture, but say no, this is a one way street. And if your horse ever becomes rude and demanding that you scratch him, then I would become (laughs) rude and demanding back and say, no, you're not getting it now. Um, That's not the kind of attitude I want. So um, so that's that's something fun to do while you're grooming. Grooming should be a fun, relaxing, and pleasurable experience to your horse, but you should always be the one in charge. And I think, Julie, that what you said about the short version, that makes so much sense because, you know, it is little day-to-day things. Maybe on a heavy workload day you don't have time to go have a good ride and then do that, but you could just ask, put, put a halter on your horse, ask him to take a few steps, do some turns, remember his cues, and then reward him a little bit, and that's still going to build that herd of two and remind him of what he needs to do, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Good. Good. I like that. Um, and the other thing I was going to say is you were talking about that. Like, my two guys out there, they get at each other with their teeth. Like, I don't want my horse – I don't want either one of them to think they can put their teeth on me. So I very quickly – Right. Like, they're not gentle yeah. about it. There are some lines we don't want to cross with the horse, and that is one of them. Um and they do very vigorously and sometimes aggressively. And also, when they need to groom, they often take a pinch of skin in the yes. teeth. Um, so he might even not think he was doing wrong. Um, and that could so easily lead to biting that we don't don't even want to go there. And just since we're working on multiple topics at once here, but your blog this month is about just that, like, all of a sudden, or out of what did what did you say? Um, for no apparent reason. For no apparent reason, you might out of the blue. Out of the blue. Out of the blue. But that's one of those things. Like for no apparent reason, I was just rubbing my horse's neck and he bit me. Well, you missed some signs before that if you let it get to that point. It's not out of the blue. So, okay, good. I like that. So in a way to make it kind of fun, because you finish something, it's not just going to do groundwork. It's, okay, we're going to do groundwork a little bit, and then we're going to play with this. Let me find your sweet spot and, and see if you can get him to put his head up in the air and bare his teeth and do this grimace and kind of get some funny reactions, too. Um, so what else can you do if you have maybe a little bit more time Um to do with your horse maybe an actual groundwork session or something? Would that be another idea to, to get him out? Maybe you don't have time to saddle up, but you could go play around unsaddled, just grab him quick and sure. maybe we're going to go do something. Well, you know, I always like to remind people that if you don't have that much time to work with your horse, you're probably going to be more productive in groundwork than riding because you'll spend half the time in riding just getting saddled, unsaddled, warmed right. up, all that. Um, and because groundwork is relationship building, and there you never reach the end of that, never. And um, so um, another thing is that I like ground. I like always like my groundwork things to tie into riding. Um, so 
I think a great thing to do, unless say maybe your footing is bad, you're someplace in the winter and you go long periods of time not actually being able to ride, but you might be able to do some groundwork just in your barnyard um, sure. or some area in your driveway, for instance. But um, So I love to do what I call the bravery game, and this is just teaching the horse to face what he's afraid of and then approach what he's afraid of and then actually reach out and touch something that just mm-hmm. moments ago he was definitely afraid of. The way this relates to riding I think is somewhat obvious. Um, I wouldn't call it de-spooking because I'm not sure I really believe there's such a thing as de-spooking horse, but what I do call it is um, a way to um, replace horse, your horse's spooking behavior with bravery. And uh, mo- I think most people know and understand that horses are flight animals. Sure. Um, what they may not understand, though, is that flight is just one of seven categories of instinctive behaviors of horses. I've already mentioned another one, which is gregarious behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but flight is probably is generally what we list first and foremost. Uh, when we start thinking about instinctive behaviors of horses because it is something that makes them somewhat unique, not entirely unique, but compared to, let's say, dogs or even donkeys, you know. Um, but So I think most people understand about fly, but what, what people may not understand is that another equally strong category of instinctive behaviors of horses is known as investigative behavior, curiosity. And if you think about that, um, once a horse decides something isn't going to kill him and eat him, what's the next thing he wants to do? Kind of puts his nose out and ears yeah. up and, like, should all I come close to All of a sudden he perks his ears up. <laughs> all of a sudden he's looking at it, smelling it, stomping on it. Um, and ultimately he will um, smell it, reach out, touch it with his lips, and even – Often, and this is a fun thing to watch for, when a horse is in investigative behavior, he'll often actually lick something because a horse wants to use all of his senses to try and understand um, something. So horses are instinctively investigative, but flight and investigative behavior are opposite. They cannot be in both behaviors at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so to me, de-spooking is not about trying to desensitize your horse to every stimulus there ever was because you cannot do that, number one. And number two, that doesn't really work because it's not the Walmart bag itself that the horse is afraid of. It's when it pops up out of nowhere. So right. we can never, you can desensitize the horse all you want, um, but you cannot you cannot take surprise away, um, particularly for us trail riders. You know, we just cannot control the environment. Um, so um, if instead we can teach our horse that flight is not an option and that he will always be rewarded and praised for investigative behavior, then what we can do is um, convert 
flight behavior into investigative behavior. And that's a scientific method of training that's known as replacement training. So what we're doing in this process is trying to replace one behavior, flight, with another behavior, investigation. And that so here's what you yeah, I was going to yeah. say, so how does that work? What do you put out there that would make pe make the horses want to investigate? So um, here's a fun little thing you could do over, let's say, over the winter or over a period of time. If you will, let's say, once a week or, or once a month, whatever you can do. If you only did it once, it would be good. But find something really unique that you, uh, what we would call a novel stimulus, something that has a lot of look to it, like a pinwheel or a streamer or a cheerleader's pom-pom or, you know, the, the only limit is your imagination. But just find an object like that and then set it up somewhere in your barn area where not – somewhere where your horse is immediately going to see it, but maybe around the back side of the barn or next to a building he doesn't normally get to go, where, where, in other words, someplace where it will surprise him. And then here's what you're going to do. Get your horse out, halter lead. I would prefer to use a rope halter with a, at least a 12-foot training lead. I would school my horse on his leading manners in, in, before he sees this object. So we would just spend a few minutes um, walking, stopping, walking, fast walk, slow walk, fast walk, walk, trot, walk, standing still, backing up, just for me to remind him of his leading manners. And then I would casually lead my horse to the area where the stimulus was. And at the first moment that he noticed it, I would calmly ask him to stop. And if he tried to leave or move around, I would remind him of his manners. I said, stop. I'm going to wait here until you do. I'm going to bump the rope and correct you if you don't. And when he stops, praise him for being a good boy. Praise him for doing what you asked. Stop him. And when you praise him, he will relax. So the mm -hmm. stimulus right now that he was, worried about, he is now standing and facing it and relaxing and getting praised. So just being in the vicinity of that scary stimulus and relaxing, just that alone is already eliminating flight. Huh. So then I'll ask him to take, when he's ready, I'll ask him to take one or two steps straight towards that thing and then ask him to stop again. If he takes two steps as I have asked and he stops as I have asked, I will praise him copiously for being an obedient, good horse. And he will take a deep breath, relax, and put his head down again. And now, again, we are eliminating flight and we are praising his bravery. If you continue that a few more steps, you will actually find the moment at which his flight behavior converts to investigative behavior because the next thing that will happen is he'll put two ears on that thing and start looking at it mm -hmm. and watching mm -hmm. it. 
And then you start praising that. Oh, my, what a brave horse you are. And please take two more steps, but now please stop. And the stopping, as you, you're going to slowly approach this thing, even once he is drawn to it, you're going to still ask him to stop because the stopping encourages the investigative behavior. The stopping him makes him say, but no, I want to be closer to that thing. I want to see that thing. And I always use the analogy. It's like if you had a 12-year-old son at home or daughter, and, and I say son because I, because I have a son. <laughs> you had a son. <laughs> but if I said every time I, before I left the house, I said, Hunter, whatever you do, don't look in that closet. <laughs> but I'm going to town. I'll be gone about a half an hour. Uh, see ya. What's the first thing he's going to do? Uh, make go sure you're out the, the driveway closet. and go check the closet. <laughs> yeah, look out the window and then go straight to the closet. So um, by only letting the horse approach the thing slowly and stopping him in between, first of all, it gives you the opportunity to praise the horse for his obedience, and it gives the horse the opportunity to relax and take in more information about the stimulus, and we do want to encourage that relaxation because they'll start getting drawn into it, and even though they're really still tense, they'll approach it. We want them to approach it in a relaxed and confident manner. So by stopping him, I increase his interest in the thing, and I keep him obedient, and that gives me a reason to continue praising him. So also, it turns it into a little bit of a game, and your horse will learn that gradually you're going to let him walk all the way up to that thing, and the ultimate prize and the end of the game comes when he reaches out and touches it. Then you make a really big fuss and you take him away from it. And he wins. And horses love to win games. They love to play games and they especially love to win games. Um, so in this method, we've made a game out of it. We've made it fun. We've discouraged flight and encouraged bravery. Um, and we've taught this horse a process for dealing with his fear. Um, we've replaced uh, we've re replace flight with investigation. So if you don't have time, if you only have five minutes, um, do the same thing with maybe just something little like a, pla a piece of plastic in your pocket. Pull it out. If it startles the horse, um, hold on to it until he relaxes and then praise him. And see if you can um, start encouraging investigative behavior even in, in small, little, easy five-minute settings. Julie, is that something, like, as the horse gets more brave to different items, would you take them back there to see how they did the Absolutely. next time? Absolutely. So if you have, like I said, if you only did it once on that one object, um, maybe I would come back a few days later and see if uh, we could do it again or if he already was, was used to that thing. The best benefit would be is if every couple of weeks, let's say, you did it again with a different object in a different place. Mm -hmm. um, the, and you can do the same thing while you're riding. You could do it even when your horse was accidentally startled. Um, but what happens is the more you do it, the more it, it becomes habitual to the horse, and the more mm -hmm. it becomes a game to the horse, and the more he plays along with it. And so um, 
my the one the the horse we used for uh, I think an article and maybe even the TV show on the subject was uh, a neighbor and friend of mine and she was a very spooky Arab mare and um, mm-hmm. she played this game with this horse first on the ground then in the saddle and now her mare still spooks. But no sooner does she spook than she turns around and starts approaching the object. So it really, really works because what we're doing is manipulating the horse's instinctive behavior. And you're making it fun by putting some funny things around. Sounds like a good trip to the dollar store to get some random streamers or, you know, whatever it is. But to kind of plan on that makes it a little bit fun or exciting. And even you could even bring a friend on it and see whose horse did better at what things or how long it takes them. You could kind of spice it up. The reason why it's fun for the horse, I mean, all of those reasons are why it's fun for us. But what's really important is it's fun for the horse, too, because he earned lots he earns lots of praise for being obedient. And horses, love, just like your dog likes to be told he's a good dog, your horse loves to be told he's a good horse. Um, but also, horses don't like being afraid. Uh, no one would like being sure. afraid. And so when we teach them brave, what they do like investigation. So when we take away their fear and replace it with bravery, um, they feel good. That is fun. So... It's it's sort of a win-win for everybody. That makes sense. Okay, so we talked about grooming, something you can kind of do every day, the ground or the bravery game, and try to spice it up that way. And it sounds like what you're saying, too, is that that one could get shorter. If you put, you have some time to put in the original game, when you do have time, maybe you can try some other things, and it hopefully will get shorter over time to, to approach different things if the horse already knows kind of what you're asking for. And absolutely, and just like I said, on a smaller scale, um, just always remember to encourage investigative behavior and reward your horse for bravery. And even uh, whenever you have the opportunity to do that, it will be helpful. Okay. So we did grooming, groundwork. What are some fun ideas that you can do with your horse that also help reinforce this leadership while you're riding? Well, um, I'll tell you, you know, I think that riding for many of us is, well, I guess any time it's an activity that you love and enjoy and are passionate about, it's always more fun when you can share it with others who also love it and are passionate about it. Um, And I think that some of the things that we've been talking about so far in this podcast are um, stuff that requires you have a certain set of knowledge. So what I'd like to think about in terms of fun exercise for riding has more to do with educating the rider. Um, And if we can um, try to make small efforts periodically to improve ourselves as a rider or a uh, horse, horse handler, um, then we are growing our passion and becoming better at what we do, and our horse is going to be happier with us. So uh, one thing that we did, uh, I did in our neighborhood, was we just picked a one one night a month to have a riding club, and a, a few of my friends and I got together, and we said, okay, 
on the third Wednesday of every month, we're going to have our riding club. And I um, like to think of it sort of like a book club, except we don't want to make you read the book ahead of time. So what we did in our riding club, which was really fun, was once everybody agreed to join, we also agreed that for each meeting, a different person would be in charge, and that person would bring the lesson to the meeting. You don't have to study ahead of time. You just have to show up at the meeting. But one person is responsible for the lesson, and the lesson just has to be um, either something fun or a new skill, and it has to be able to be uh, participated by all levels. So in our particular group, we had um, everything from professional rider like myself to um, someone fairly new to horses just starting out. So we wanted we took the same exercise, we made it doable or meaningful for every level, and then uh, if it was my turn to be the leader, I would show the exercise and how to do it, and then we would each take turns doing it, and then we would talk about why it worked or why it didn't work. And then another person in the group each meeting was responsible for the refreshments. So after we did all of our studying or practicing, then we would have our little refreshments and social time. So mm-hmm. it's turning, um, you know, it's a little bit social, a little bit educational, and a lot productive in terms of, um, you know, improving your own skill and knowledge. And I love it, too, because it's accountability. You know, I know – having a husband and a kid and a full-time job and two horses and two cats and three dogs, like, you just like, okay, wait, when I fed them today, I did this, but have I ridden this week? Like, you know, but if we set up a time, like, okay, Wednesday night, I know that my friend's coming over and we are getting on the horses and we're doing this. Like, it's it's one of those things, I think, if it's on the calendar, you'll do it. And if it's not, it just, you sure. forget <laughs> Dedicated time, absolutely. And, you know, we've talked about that of my neighbors. Um, We all live on kind of two-acre property, so we're pretty close in here together and talk about some things like you could even have a little short competition of how long can my horse ground tie and, you know, just kind of make it fun if it's not a big formal thing at first. I think it would be just fun to do some, some smaller pieces of that, too. Well, I I have in a horsey neighborhood, too, and I'm lucky to have a lot of friends around me. And even just coming over and riding and visiting is is fun. It's a nice change of pace for your horse. They love it when my neighbor comes over to ride because she and I talk and they get to do less work. (laughs) You know, so it's uh, it's fun for everybody. Absolutely. Riding in horses is fun. it's all the more fun in a social setting. And also, let's let's talk about the five minute version. Maybe you don't have maybe you don't live in that na- horsey neighborhood or maybe you board your horses somewhere and that's not gonna work. Um I'd say the five minute version would be to make your own commitment to yourself to study and learn one new thing about horses or riding every month. But it's not enough to just learn that one thing. You also should make the commitment to teach that one thing to one other person because one thing I know for a fact because I've been doing it my entire career is that when you learn something new and you teach it to someone else, you learn it all over again when you teach it to somebody else. And the more times you teach it to somebody else, 
the better you learn that thing. So you could, let's say, I wanted to learn more about the instinctive, the seven categories of instinctive behaviors of horses, and I'm going to make that my month's mission to, to Google it and, and uh, go to Julie Goodnight's website and read about it. I've written a lot about it. Um, then that's half of your goal. The second half is, I'm, and then I'm going to teach that to somebody else, whether it's my friend or my neighbor or my child or my spouse. Um, I'm going to teach it to somebody else, and in sharing that with somebody else, I've learned it all over again. So, um, so that's a great uh, small version of the writing. Have your own private writing club. And mm-hmm. in, in a bragging moment of my three-year-old on her pony, we had um, just reminded me of you saying that teaching someone else and how proud you are as the teacher when you hear the student repeat back <laughs> what they've already learned. But we had um, a couple little kids come over, her friends, to ride the pony. I thought, oh, gosh, how is this going to work? You know, is she going to share the pony? And so I set it up so that she got on first, and I told her she'd only ride for a short time, but that it was her job to show them what to do. And I said, we're going to get on, and we're going to show them how to turn right, how to turn left, what you have to do when you stop. And it was the cutest thing because she was just – it took she took on a whole different little, you know, in her posture and she's like this is how you turn and you put your rein to your pocket and this is how you turn and then you say whoa and you sit back like this and you know it's just all these things I thought that is so cool because she she has been getting it but to hear her verbalize that and show somebody else and then she had something to do too you know I didn't want to have her hog all the pony time when we invited other kids over but but it is and for any age I think that's true I can't think of a more perfect example of how uh, of that. When you teach something to someone else, you learn it all the better. And she was doing that, and you were doing that. But the satisfaction that you felt in, um, wow, I did such a great job of teaching this to her that she can now teach it to somebody else. And uh, in closing, I'll just share with you my very favorite comment that I get in clinics. Unfortunately, I get it a fair amount. Uh, when I'm doing specific exercises. Um, I've just done a long uh, diatribe on, let's say, rein aids and leg aids and how they work together to move different parts of the horse's body. And um, and then I have people go out and try it. And my favorite comment when they do go out and try it is, wow, that really worked. (laughs) um, that's the satisfaction of knowing that what you taught somebody had was meaningful to them. And that's what happened between you and your daughter. And uh, when she was teaching her friends, she was learning that skill all over again. So good job. Yeah, good. All right. Well, thank you. I think there's some really good tips. And these are all just little things that you can do. And so your rides on the weekend are going to be better by having all this little interaction, however you can fit it in and spice it up, do something fun along the way. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. I'm Heidi Malacco. I am here today with Desiree Johnson, the owner and designer of Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. And Desiree, you have a pretty interesting story being a rider of why you wanted to create the perfect jeans for people to ride in and why there was such a need for something that felt good in the saddle. Tell me a little bit about how you got started. 
Well, hello, Heidi. Thank you for calling. Yes, I do. Um, this all started uh, a few years before we bought the company. Um, I was uh, very lucky to have been able to have my own stable. Um, right. I had three stalls and I uh, had a few event horses in training and my own ring and I was teaching and because I'm an event rider, okay. I was doing a lot of... Uh, a lot of setting up jumps and grooming the ring and, you know, the PP and D, the poop pick up and drag and uh, all, all the manual labor that goes along with uh, four acres of mowing and uh, gardening and all of that, being a wife and the shopping. And, and I was in my tack room one day and uh, the, I was taking my breeches and boots off yet once again. Right. And I thought to myself, uh, there's got to be a jean out there. I need some blue jeans that I can also ride in. Right. Because I do so much teaching. I jump up on a horse for 10 minutes, then I jump down, and I have to set up jumps, and the, the, you know, the britches just get, get thrashed. They're too nice to work in. I mean, to really, really work in. So I went to my local ranching home. Now, remember, I'm an English rider, so I went right. to a, a store specialty in western 20 different styles of western blue jeans and i asked the lady i told her i said i want your top of the line western riding jean not going to say the name of it because i don't want to smash it sure sure she took me to the top of the line and i looked at them and i looked at the seat area and i saw that lump but your best riding jean she said yes and i said well these aren't riding jeans and she looked at me she kind of blinked and i said there's this lump in the crotch seat area and that's the whole reason why I'm here is because I can't ride in country western dancing jeans I need a riding jean and she said well this is this is it and so I you know I went home and I told Eric I said you know what I'm going to start my own business it's going to be called Designs by Desiree and I told him my story and what I did is I went online and at that time I didn't find anything like what it was that I wanted but I did find a pattern a pattern. So I ended up, to make a, a long story short, I made three pairs of these little sweatpants that were, you know, one seamless inside, right up the front and the back, and they were basically little sweatpants with little knee pads, and I wore those little jeans. I, wore, I made a corduroy pair of winter and a lightweight jean material for summer. I wore them out. <laughs> Two years or so, wore them holes and what I loved about them is they were short, you know, right up to the ankle. I could stick them in my English boots, and then I would take my boots off, and I could work in these little jeans, pants, all day long. And I could go grocery shopping, and I could get down in the dirt and garden and do the mowing and move my jumps. So finally they, they wore out, and it was around Thanksgiving time, and uh, I said to Eric, I said, there's got to be somebody who has thought of this idea. I can't be the only one. So I sat down with Mimosa, uh, at the holiday time, and I found Smooth Stride Riding Jean Company. And the mission statement and the explanation was exactly what I was looking for. And they were interested in selling the company, and Eric and I had a powwow, and we said, let's do it. And the thing that we were, we didn't know anything about the manufacturing clothing business, nothing. I know, it was really, the learning curve was incredible. The inventory that we bought, that we thought we were going to be able to buy, was all messed up. It wasn't graded mm. properly and didn't fit anybody. So we basically started from scratch. I redesigned this incredible already existing jean that had the seamless inside and was a boot cut. And I made it, I'm, I recreated the whole, uh, basically the waist. 
contoured waistband, the grading is correct, the rise is correct for riders, for mature riders, not teenagers with, you know, that weigh 115 pounds. Mm-hmm. These are designed for women who have either had kids or not, but have lived with their bodies and, you know, for, for mature women. Have the curves that they are supposed to have once they have reached adulthood. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Now tell me, what do you mean by the grade? Is that the way that the shape changes up around your waist? Well, for instance, when we got the inventory, I had these tiny little rises and huge legs. So the legs didn't match, so the lower part didn't match the upper part. So if you have a size 10 jean, it is graded size 10 the whole length of the jean. And that's... uh, it's a, there's a science to it. And okay. so our genes are, you know, we hired, literally hired a specialist to grade the patterns correctly. Okay. So, yeah, there's a lot of math. You've learned lots of terminology about this. And, and so the big thing about these that makes them for riding, what would you say are your, your top features that make them for riders, not just for wearing on the street? But you could do both. Yes, you could. The main thing is that cross lump and the seat area has been removed. Literally, they're, they're just like uh, how they build English riding breeches, only uh, they're Western boot cut. Second thing would be the rise in the back. It's hard to find a blue jean out there that calls itself a riding jean that has a, a correct um, rise. The contoured waistband, so it's just not a straight piece. It's also curved to shape to fit women's curves. And the stretch, it's a perfect amount of stretch. We have a special process that they don't bag out, so we've eliminated the bag out problem. So this jean that you buy will be the same size within eight hours or two days or three days. They don't, you just don't put them in the washing machine and they snap back and then bag out again. So if they don't fit, that probably means that you've gained a little weight. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm imagining what this means when you're actually on a day-long trail rider, like with you with endurance riding I grew up riding western we always rode in jeans and I remember on longer days like the inside of your leg would be a little chaff but that's just what you had and I think it's interesting to hear you say with that English or endurance perspective everything you're thinking of has to do with how can I wear this all day be comfortable and make it through the miles right sure literally there are some of us that we get in the saddle after 10 minutes I was not comfortable right this it's also for instructors, for instance, who just get on, who are teaching all day long. They need a safe place for their phone for emergencies because we have a beautiful old, you know, classic welt pocket on the top of the right side that mm-hmm. is, uh, doesn't have any closure to break or anything, and it fits in snugly so it's not going to flop around. So even for instructors who have to get on a horse and just demonstrate something for 10 minutes and get back off again. Right, so. and feel comfortable in what you're getting down. Because I know when I have ridden English and you're in your breeches and sometimes you're like, whoosh, should I not? I, want, I don't mind riding these in the saddle, but I definitely don't want to go in public in them. So I think that's a, a great aspect too, something you can be comfortable in, but you can get on and off and still do whatever you need to do. Sure. Yeah, I I was joking in another interview I did that you could be a lawyer with a blazer in an office and then you could go straight to the barn and you wouldn't have to change your pants all day long. And thinking about the rider, not somebody that's coming from the fashion world 
and how to make those look good at the barn, which they look good. All the jeans can look good, but mm-hmm. how can you find something that's going to keep you comfortable in the saddle, not have that big seam on the inside, right, where you're trying to have contact and right. communicate with your horse with your leg position, feel good no matter what you're doing. I spend so much money on equipment for our horse, and so I really feel like this is a, a very valuable piece of equipment for for riders finally. Good. Well, thank you for taking this on and figuring out something that's going to be good for a lot of riders. Thank you, Heidi. Thanks for listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. Check out smoothstride.com and find them on Facebook to thank them for making this podcast possible. Also, be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com slash podcasts for the full library of audio interviews you can listen to in the car or at the barn. For listening to Julie Goodnight's Horse Master Academy podcast, presented by Smooth Stride Riding Jeans. Check out smoothstride.com and find them on Facebook to thank them for making this podcast possible. Also, be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com slash podcasts for the full library of audio interviews you can listen to in the car or at the barn.